Blessed Lord, we give you thanks for the hope of heaven, for the promise of eternal life for your church that transcends every time and place and people and language. You bring us together in your son, Jesus. Lord, bless this little sliver of your church here at Trinity and in Arcadia. And we pray, Lord, that you'd be with us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so on your handouts there, there is a little Far Side cartoon. You guys remember the Far Side? From, I understand, a Lutheran, Gary Larson. I can't confirm that, but... There you've got a picture of the angel on the clouds, presumably in heaven, and the little thought bubble comes up from him and says, wish I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> wish I'd brought a magazine. With the assumption being, or the, the message is, boy, heaven is just going to be a real bore, you know, just floating up there on, on clouds and the harps and all that. Do you think that this cartoon reflects how Many people tend to think about heaven. Or is he, he's overstating the case, obviously, for, for humorous reasons. But do you think there's something to this? Do you think this is how a lot of people tend to think about heaven? Well, yeah. You want to serve somebody day and night? You want to serve somebody day and night? What? That doesn't sound like heaven to me. Sure, yeah. All those people. All those people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> for the, the introverts, they're like, oh, yeah. gosh, 144,000 or more. That's too many. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you hear that kind of thing more often. You know, people will say, oh, you know, so-and-so's, you know, fishing with Peter and the disciples or he's yeah. playing golf or something. That's what I'd rather be doing than whatever they're doing there. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's something about this, that this is a, a kind of conventional view of heaven. It is emphatically not the biblical view, however. And in this third session of our, our study here, Surprised by Hope, in the video we're going to watch in a moment, uh, N.T. Wright and his real name, Nicholas Thomas Ray, um, is going to help us get a, a, a more robust biblical view of heaven, that the focus is not, again, primarily on where we go to after we die, but it's the place, it's the dimension from which God reigns and rules earth even now. So video, once again, is about 15 minutes. Uh, on your handout here, you have an outline under where it says video teaching and outline. What he's going to talk about for you to take any notes or questions that it might raise. And we'll uh, come together again after and talk about it. Here in England, we have so much weather, it hurts sometimes. And on a day like today, suddenly the clouds roll in and there they are, all fluffy and pretty. And some people, when they look up at those clouds here or indeed in America or elsewhere, they have been taught to think, maybe that's what heaven's like. We know we'll go up there to be with God and the angels and we'll be sitting on those clouds and maybe playing harps and wearing long robes and all that stuff. I've even heard people who talk like that quite seriously, as though they really do think that to get to heaven, you somehow have to go flying up in the sky and land up on one of those things. Now, we all know, in fact, that clouds wouldn't sustain you even if you tried to sit on them, but that doesn't stop people talking as if that's where we were going to be. There is one obvious problem about that. It came out in a Far Side cartoon a few years ago. There was a guy sitting on one of these clouds with a harp, and he was saying, you know, I wish I'd brought a magazine. He was bored, because that idea of just sitting around on a cloud all day forever and ever and ever, like, why would you want to do that? So we've got this problem. There are some people who really do think 
that that's what life after death and salvation is going to be like. And there are other people who say, if that's what it's like, it's not as much fun as it was cracked up to be. The good news is that the biblical view of salvation, of life after death, isn't like either of those. It's much more interesting, and what's more, much more hopeful. deal of talk about heaven in popular Christian circles, but also, of course, quite a bit in the Bible itself. But very few people, in my experience, stop to ask, what actually is heaven? Where is it? What sort of a place or a space actually are we talking about here? I have met people who really seriously believe that heaven is a place, an area, within our space-time universe, so that if only you could go up far enough, you would eventually get there. Quite what that says about people who live the other side of the world. Do they have to go down? And is it down there as well? I'm really not sure. But most people realize that it's actually not like that. There was once um, a Russian astronaut who went out into space and came back and declared that he'd been out there and looked for God and there couldn't be a God because he hadn't seen him. He said he'd been out there, no God, no heaven, no nothing. Quite a lot of people hearing that thought probably just as well, actually, because that wasn't the sort of thing that heaven or God was supposed to be anyway. So what is heaven? Where is it? A lot of people still, though they think it isn't a physical place, imagine that heaven is a long way away. They think of earth and heaven as strange different sorts of realities, but separated by a great gulf so that you couldn't actually imagine them coming together. And therefore, if they think of someone, whether it's God or a human being, in heaven, they imagine that God or that human being is a long way away, can't really be in contact with us, must have really nothing much to do with us at all. But you know, in the Bible, it's not like that. In the Bible, heaven and earth are the two interlocking spheres of God's good creation. It's as though God makes heaven and earth, and right from the beginning in the book of Genesis, it appears that they overlap, that they're supposed to work together somehow, in a mysterious way, of course, so that God can show up and then go away again, not to a great distance, but so that he is known and then not known, and people have a sense of his presence, and then a sense perhaps of his absence, and then a sense of at least his possibility. Heaven and earth somehow merging and mingling, but in such a way that we can never actually control that, though we can experience it and we can learn to respond appropriately to it. So that's one of the first things to say about heaven in the Bible, right there from the book of Genesis, that God created heaven and earth and it looks as though they're supposed to belong together. And you can cut from that straight across to one of the most wonderful things that St. Paul says in one of his greatest letters, the letter to the Ephesians, when in chapter 1, verse 10, he says that God's plan always was to sum up in Christ everything in heaven and on earth. Again, we have that sense of heaven as being God's space 
but designed to work together with Earth, which is our space. And of course, that fits very well with the picture at the end of the book of Revelation, where, as we saw in an earlier session, we have heaven coming down to Earth. But it's not just that heaven and Earth are supposed to overlap. One of the great truths which we find in Scripture again and again is that heaven is, as it were, the control room for what happens on Earth. There are some wonderful passages in the Old Testament which make this quite clear, particularly when the Jewish people in the Old Testament are faced with the might of pagan empire. When you get in the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends facing some of the greatest kings and kingdoms of the pagan world of their day, what they end up saying to those kings and their kingdoms is, listen, there is a God in heaven, and that God is actually sovereign over earth, and you, who claim to run this earth, had therefore better watch out, because the God who is in heaven is in fact calling you to account. Now, of course, that's one of the reasons why people think that heaven must be a long way away from earth, because they say, if heaven is the control room for earth, doesn't seem to be doing a great job of things right now. Earth is still in a pretty awful mess. But again and again, the stories we find in the Bible are stories about the God who lives in heaven, which is not far away at all, just as it were, round the corner, as close to us almost as breath, it sometimes seems. The God who lives in heaven, wanting actually to make his sovereign rule known on earth, but knowing perfectly well that if he does it instantly and immediately, it will have some pretty devastating effects. And so bringing that sovereign rule to bear through the work of his spirit, of his son, of his powerful love, the message of his hope and his love coming from heaven to earth to transform earth in a way which will heal it and not simply burn it up, as it were. So what happens when we think of heaven as the control room for earth? How is that going to play out? We find in the Gospels Jesus as the place where heaven and earth meet. To understand this properly, you have to understand a bit about what the ancient Jews thought about the temple. When we think about the temple in Jerusalem, we may imagine that it was, as it were, just like a big church on a street corner. And you'd go there to worship, and you'd go there to say your prayers, and you'd maybe go there for special festivals, but that would be about the long and the short of it. For the Jews, it was much, much more than that. For the Jewish people, it was as though the temple was the place where heaven and earth really did overlap. So that when they went into the temple, it wasn't just, let's pretend that we're in heaven. It was actually, when we're in this building on earth, we are actually also in heaven. Actually, some church architects in the Christian world have tried to do something similar. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, they have the bit at one end which symbolizes heaven and the bit at the other end which symbolizes earth, and you have pictures on the screen in between of the saints so that the people who are, as it were, in earth can see what it might be, uh, might be going on actually in heaven. And then the gospel book is brought out because that's a reality which comes from heaven to earth. And the sacraments are brought out because they come from heaven to earth. And so the whole of the church building is designed to say, listen, when we're worshipping, 
we can be in heaven and on earth at the same time, anticipating the great reality when God is going to bring the two of them together at last. So what does that then tell us about what many people couple with heaven, not earth, but actually hell? I think a lot of language got off on the wrong foot somewhere in the Middle Ages when people, and you can see it in Michelangelo's great painting in the Sistine Chapel, people started envisaging heaven and hell as, as it were, equal and opposite realities. So that from roughly the 12th or the 13th century onwards in Western culture, both Catholics and Protestants tended to say, well, you go through your life and the aim is either to get to heaven or to go to hell. And you've got to choose wisely in this life and then hopefully you'll get to heaven rather than hell. But in the Bible, heaven is not equal and opposite with hell. Heaven, as I've said, is designed to come together with earth. And the word hell, in the way we use it, is a rather loose and actually not always very helpful way of holding out that awful possibility that because God has given us responsibility as human beings, we have the right, if we so choose, to say to him, we do not wish to be part of this new heaven plus earth reality. We just want to stay in our own world, a world which we can control, a world which we can make. We want to keep heaven out of the picture. And because we have the dignity of being human beings, God has given us the right to do that. And that is a tragic possibility, which according to the New Testament, many do in fact embrace. But it needn't be like that. And to try to use that awful possibility as a way of frightening people into saying, well, you better avoid hell, so look, here's how you get into heaven, often can appeal to exactly the wrong instincts, a kind of selfish self-preservation instinct, rather than the thing which makes the gospel what it is, which is the promise that God is going to make the whole world over anew and has invited us to share in that making new right here and now in our own lives, but also to share in the work of what he's going to do to bring it all about. So we shouldn't then think of heaven and hell as places within our cosmos, one maybe a long way up in the sky and another way, another one way down there on earth. They are rather states of existence, but they are states of existence which are not the same sort of thing at all, because in the life of heaven, when it is joined to earth, we become more truly human. And the point about hell, sadly, is that is where people become less truly human, because you become like what you worship. And if you worship the God in whose image you are made, you become more genuinely human. And if you refuse to worship him, if you hold him at arm's length, if you say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you, or to have you having anything to do with me and my life, then you are, as it were, colluding with the dangerous possibility of becoming less and less genuinely human altogether. That is a tragic possibility, and we have to uh, be aware of that for all of us, even though the Bible has great promises about how, in fact, we can be part of God's new heavens and new earth. People often get puzzled when they read the New Testament, particularly for the first time, when in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, but in Mark and Luke and a little bit in John, he talks about the kingdom of God. Actually, for many Jews, 
those were two ways of saying the same thing. And because they were often reverent about not wanting to say the word God too often, they sometimes would say heaven when they meant God. The trouble is that many Christians, reading Matthew's Gospel particularly, find Jesus saying things like, um, if you do this, if you do that, you will be called either the least or the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And because many Christians assume that the name of the game is to go to heaven, they think that Jesus is talking about a kingdom, namely a place called heaven, where you might or might not go at the end of time or the end of your life. But Jesus himself makes it quite clear in some of the very same passages that that's not what's going on. In Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's as it were in the middle of the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at how that great sermon really works and is structured, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is not a place called heaven where you go to escape from earth. The kingdom of heaven means the sovereign rule of heaven, which is coming to birth on earth. So why does Jesus say in Luke's gospel to one of the brigands who was being crucified alongside him, today you will be with me in paradise? Isn't that going away from earth and being somewhere else? Well, yes it is. Paradise is actually an old word not used very often in the Bible, just from time to time, which literally means a beautiful garden, a lovely resting place. But the point about paradise is not that it's a place to go and live forever and ever. Paradise, or in that sense heaven, is a place where you go to be refreshed until the time comes when you can continue your journey to your destination. So the fact remains, when Jesus spoke about heaven, he was basically speaking about God's rule coming on earth. But obviously for people who die before that final event happens, they will be with him in heaven or in paradise until the work of the kingdom on earth is actually complete. So to sum up, heaven is God's space. It is where there is God's peace and justice ruling and reigning, and God's plan is to bring that together with the life of earth. He has made that real in Jesus, doing in Jesus what the temple in Jerusalem had already symbolized, bringing heaven and earth together. And then those who follow Jesus find that in the power of his spirit, heaven and earth can start to come together where they are as well, in their lives, and through their lives. So we shouldn't think of heaven as just some place where we might end up one day if we're lucky. We should think of it as the reality which can come to birth here and now. We will talk in a later session about what does happen after death for those who belong to Jesus because it, because it isn't just about going to heaven forever and ever. It's going to heaven, yes, but then something much more wonderful out beyond that. But that's another story. For now, let's just focus on this, that God's space and our space are meant to work together, and we can learn what that means right here and right now. All right. Initial uh, reactions or, or questions? Reflections? Okay, let's dig in. Um, there's a lot to, uh, to unpack here in terms of what heaven is and how it functions in our faith and, and in our hope. 
The first thing, this is I think the, the big takeaway in terms of thinking about what heaven is. Number one on your handout under discussion. Heaven is God's control room for commanding earth. That's how he put it. God's control room for commanding earth. And for me, I, whenever I hear that or, or think about that, I think about like the old Scooby-Doo cartoons where, you know, they would be up in a room looking for the bad guy. They'd be in some big old mansion. And then, you know, in, invariably at one point, they'd like lean on a library wall. And then all of a sudden the wall spins around and they find themselves in, you know, the, the evil guy's uh, lair or his, his control room, right? It's a headquarters. Um, so I don't know if that works really well, thinking about God. So God's like the evil guy with the cat. No, no, okay. Um, yeah, the analogy breaks there. But the idea being heaven less as, I mean, even that kind of gives the impression that it's a uh, physical place. It's less that physical location, certainly not just somewhere out by Pluto. You know, it used to be a planet, now it's not. So God has recolonized it as his headquarters. Um, but in fact, it's, this, it's the dimension of his one creation, which comprises both heaven and earth, the place from which he reigns and rules. And so just to give a few scriptures uh, along these lines, uh, Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Those things go hand in hand. The fact that he is in the heavens, the fact that he's in heaven, that's his control room, the place from which he's able to affect and execute his will. Daniel, which he alluded to in the video, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Heaven is the place from which God reigns and rules. And once more, Psalm 123, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So heaven is the place where God is on his throne, as it were, the we, control room. Yes? We always think of it. We always think of it. We always think of it as up there. And I think that that's a natural human inclination. And I, you know, reading the scriptures, as that psalm suggests, I don't think it's a bad thing for us to turn our eyes to, to the heavens. Not least because, you know, I think of, of Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? So there's a sense in which <clears throat> to look at the heavens, to look at the skies, um, prompts humility in us and a sense of awe and reverence at God. It's perfectly appropriate. It's just recognizing, yeah, that he's not just up there hiding somewhere. Yeah, Hans? Well, you have the Tower of Babel, right. which they were trying to build their yes. way up there. Yep. So obviously up was the direction that they were building. They yeah. were digging a pit. Right. So there's that. And then you have uh, Jacob's Ladder. Sure. Where... He sees angels coming in down from heaven. Yep, yep. So, again, that's that up. Well, and the ascension, right? The ascension, yes. You know, Jesus goes up into right. the clouds. So it's not that there isn't reason for people, you know, to, to read and think, okay, yeah, there seems to be some verticality to it. It's a yeah. real place up there. Right. But I think the, the thing I got out of this was the Lord's Prayer. So, uh, yeah. Talking about thy kingdom come. Yep, on earth. On earth. As it is in heaven. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important point. Yeah. So he, he um, teased this out just a little bit, but what effect on faith does the view that heaven is a far-off place have? So if you have this, this mentality that heaven is some way far-off place and, and God is there, um, how does that impact your faith 
here on Earth, if that's your if that's your view. Yeah, Esther. He doesn't really care what's going on. He doesn't really care what's going on. Yeah, listen. He's not listening because he's way over there. You he's know, not listening. When I'm in one yeah. room and he's in another room and right. I'm talking to him in a voice, it's, I can't hear you. I, that's right. Well, there might be other reasons for that. Well, but, yeah, uh, there are. But. Actually, I heard somebody point out the other day that we have eyelids, but we don't have earlids. <laughs> so you have to be more creative. But no, this is exactly right. Now, if you have this view that, well, God is way far off, he, he can't hear me, or he doesn't care. He's the absentee landlord, right? He has relocated himself far away. Um, it really impacts our, our faith. Whereas conversely, when we have this understanding, this view that heaven is this dimension which is, surrounds us, and that he fills all things, then anywhere and everywhere there is God for us and able to um, be there present with us. See? It's a, a very different um, way of looking at it, I think. So the second thing on, on the handout here, the, the second point to make, because we mentioned the ascension. How does Jesus' ascension fit into this? Then? Well, Jesus' ascension into heaven is his coronation day. So you know, ascension is maybe the, the feast in the church here that gets overlooked more than any other. It's a thing we just kind of tack on, add on in the creed and it's not really sh clear. Why do we need this? Is it just because, well, Jesus had to go somewhere eventually and so this, this is what it is. Uh, but in fact, when Jesus ascends into heaven, this is a key point because this is the moment of his enthronement uh, uh, at the right hand of God the Father. So it says in 1 Peter 3, Jesus has gone into heaven is at the right, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, let me pause there and ask. All right, so we said that heaven is not just some physical place, Pluto or otherwise. Where is God's right hand? What does that mean? How do you understand that? When you, when you hear that and you know, say it in the creed or you read it in the scriptures, how do you understand, what do you understand that to mean? Speaking of God's right hand. Yeah, you think of a, oh, God on the throne. Okay, you think of God on the throne. Okay, and there's, there's right Jesus, hand. his right hand man, yeah. as it were. Yeah, court. The right hand is always the good side of good. Okay, right hand is the, the good side of good. All due respect to our lefties in the congregation here. But, <laughs> and you're welcome. What else? The right hand. Okay. Okay, position of power and blessing. Okay, Yep. When, when Jacob blessed his sons, going back to the Old Testament. And, yeah, go ahead. The right hand is always thought of as handling the weapons, the swords. Oh, yeah. And, you know, throughout history, it's been right hand, right hand. You know, people were taught to not use their left hand yeah. for, you know, in school and stuff. Right. Yeah, golf clubs. I mean, it's really hard to yeah. get left-handed golf clubs. Um, anyway, uh, all these things are, are true, except perhaps the golf clubs part, but it's all, it's all true in terms of the sim symbolism of that, that right hand. And theologically, for us to understand, well, where is God's right hand? It's um, a way theologically of, of speaking of, well, a, a fancy word that theologians will use is uh, ubiquity, okay? So if something is ubiquitous, it's what? Everywhere. It's everywhere, okay? So when we talk about the ubiquity of our Lord Jesus, at God's right hand, it means that he fills all things. Read again from Ephesians, this other um, passage I put on here for you. God worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus, when he rises from the dead, is he a ghost? No, he's not a ghost. Is he a phantom? No, he's not a phantom. He's in his physical body. When he ascends into heaven, does he slough off his body like a snake molting its skin? He does not. He does not. He is still the incarnate Savior at the right hand of God. Okay? But now, in his physical, glorified, resurrected state, he is able to be all places, everywhere, because the right hand of God means that he fills all things. All right. Pause for a moment there for your brains to explode. What? what? But th- this, this is the idea. Jesus hasn't stopped being the incarnate Son of God. What has changed is that now, in his incarnate self, he is able to fill all things because he is at God's right hand. Yeah, Hans. You're talk- talking about in his physical form. Well, um, if we're going to be the same way, are we going to have our same infirmities as well? He had holes in his hands. Yeah. If you have a bad hip, you can have that. You... Sure, right. Yeah. Uh, so, Melody, uh, that's, that's a little too close to home, right? Melody's having sur- hip surgery this week. So, um, okay, so Hans is asking, okay, so Jesus had some of those marks, those dear tokens of his passion, still his glorious body bears, says in, in the hymn, uh, Lo, he comes. So will we still have that? And this is another one of those, we can't say too much, right? But I just always find that to be a really beautiful expression of the fact there's that continuity and discontinuity. We talked about this. Continuity between this life and the next. You're still yourself, right? But there's discontinuity. You're you're different as well. And there's something about those scars being there that are, to me, indicative of the fact that um, God doesn't just whitewash the pains and the (coughs) sorrows of our lives. But instead, Romans 8, 28, he works all things to the good of them that love him, right? And so he is able to take those broken things and to restore it without the, um, the completely forgetting that it ever happened, I guess. That's just kind of my, my impression of it. But, uh, yeah, Esther. When I think about, you know, pain and suffering in this world, yeah. Um, our limited vision, we don't really see what it's all about. Right. And one day we will. Yes. And when God says, my grace is sufficient, yeah. he knows exactly what he's doing. What does it take to transform me or anyone else sure. into the image of Christ? Yeah. I don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> That's above our pay grade, right? We, yeah. we let him do it. But God knows. But God knows. And he's doing it even now. Yes. He who began a good work in you, uh, we'll bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And someday we can say, this scar here, remember? Yes. You know, and I thought, you know, and, but yeah, look what God did because of that. Yeah, well, again, stories to tell. yeah, think of our, our reading today from Revelation. It doesn't say, and there will be no more tears. It says, God will wipe every tear away. And uh, that's different. That's not the same thing, see? Um, there's still that, that sense of that, that pain and sorrow, but 
now being transformed and redeemed and caught up into God's overall good, good plan. Uh, this view, this understanding of the ascension, I think is so valuable, practically valuable in our day-to-day lives when we think about the world and especially when it feels like it's out of control, right? He, he kind of quipped, like, the control room must be far away because, you know, things sure seem to be pretty crazy down here, right? Um, but think about how Jesus' present lordship in the world brings relief and hope. I mean, the fact that Jesus is in charge, okay, perhaps even against all, all uh, evidence to the contrary, things that we might see with our eyes, the fact that Jesus is risen, ascended, and ruling at the right hand of God, what comfort does that bring us in the midst of this life? How does that impact just the way that we view day-to-day life? Or conversely, if you don't see that, what does it, what does it do to you? Yeah. He's still there for us. He's still there for us. In this chaos, we know that Christ still rules no yes. matter what anyone, any human yep. wants to say. Yep. In the midst of the chaos, Christ still rules. He, he's the one that, as we saw in Revelation 1, he's got the whole world in his hands. Right? He's got the, the cosmos in his hands. Yeah, good. What else? How does, it, how does it bring you comfort to know that Jesus is Lord right now? Now, my daughter and son-in-law are going through a really, really, really rough time, yeah. and she's having a really hard time with it, Yeah. because he keeps telling her, you know, if you're not going to come back just tonight, don't bother to come tomorrow type thing, yeah. you know, so it's, he's very depressed, Yeah. and she's having a hard time handling it, because she has the same problems he does as far as depression and emotional goes. Right. So, her just knowing... God's there, even though he doesn't seem to be listening to her right now, is a big thing for her. Right. Yeah, to know that your prayers are not unheeded or unheard by God, um, but that he hears them and that he's still in charge in the midst of it. Yeah. Yeah, Cindy. Well, when I think of Ukraine, I just get such a sadness. Sure. But then I think that even in the midst of all that sorrow and crisis, that Jesus is there working in many, many wonderful ways in the lives of people who are dying, who are losing loved ones. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think... For this view of Jesus' lordship, it's, it's helpful in such a personal way, but also when you get that view of the, of the world and you see like these big, large-scale things where it's like, I can't do anything with this, right? I might be able to donate some money or try, and I can say my prayers, but to know that the Lord is in charge of all of it. I was watching one of these videos. It was too late at night and, you know, online and like, Hey, what would it really be like if people started dropping nuclear bombs all over? That's always a good thing to watch before you go to bed. And, um, you know, don't say that you've never watched this kind of stuff, too. It's like, oh, my word. And you can feel utterly overwhelmed and and kind of scared. Like, wow, yeah, what, what could happen? But to know this is not beyond the purview of, of the Lord. He's not like, you know, flipping through his heavenly manual, like, nuclear war. Where was this? Oh my gosh. Let me go to the index really quick. Like, He's in charge, right? He's in charge. Come what may. Even if there is a nuclear war. 
you know, God forbid. But if there were, we know that we have a, the Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And in the midst of it, too, like Cindy says, he could be doing things that we, don't, we couldn't ever possibly fathom. Right? So it's a great source of comfort and, and hope, I think. So on that, uh, just a quick plug then, Ascension Day, we'll be celebrating here. Uh, Ascension Day picnic and kite fly once again on Ascension Day, which is May 26th. May 26th. Sixth? Yeah, at 5.30. So come on out for that and celebrate the enthronement of our Lord Jesus. All right, number three. God's intent is that heaven and earth be two interlocking spheres of his gracious activity. I'd love to hear N.T. Wright talk about this. He's, uh, this is just such a cool way to think about it. Two interlocking spheres, or overlapping aspects. So he mentioned Ephesians 1. says God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, is to unite all things in him. I preached on this last summer. It's that big word, recapitulate. Bring all things back together under his lordship. Things in heaven and things on earth. And again, Colossians 1. He, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, cohere in him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So that God's ultimate intention is for there to be, again, the, where's my, I don't have my, uh, my board. I'm just going to have to pretend here. Uh, so my, my favorite diagram is, of course, the Venn, Venn diagram. Thank you, man. And uh, you, this, is, this is where the Venn diagram is really helpful, right? Because you remember the Venn diagram with the circles, okay? So you've got the, the circles. The one circle over here is earth. The other circle is heaven. Initially, there was that overlap of heaven and earth, all right? When sin comes into the world, it breaks apart. Now, because of, of what Christ has done in God's word and his promises, there is this overlapping area, which, as he said in the video, for the Jews was where? Where did they especially experience that overlap? The temple, right? As Christians, there's different ways that we could think about that. So we would think, of, of course, about church and worship and the sacraments as being a place of that overlap of the two circles, but not only there, right? It happens in our, in our lives of faith, in those experiences of, of the Spirit, in moments of prayer and so forth, where there is that overlap. Ultimately, again, when Jesus returns, there's going to be that full overlap and interlocking of heaven and earth, see? That reunion, whereas right now we experience largely a sense of disunion. But I'm curious for you in your life, where have you, or in, in what ways, have you experienced that overlapping of heaven and earth? Can you think of particular moments or just more, more general sorts of, of times when you experience that, that sense of the overlap of heaven and earth, that intersection of God's reality and our reality? You had those, those moments? Yeah. When our uh, older son was very ill, mm -hmm. I felt um, many God moments when I prayed for something and within 10 minutes, I got an answer. Right, right. And, and I'd never had that before, but we were in such crisis yeah. that I really needed to feel that. Yeah, and isn't that interesting? I think many of us would agree. It's in moments of crisis, mm -hmm. paradoxically, where we often will mm -hmm. experience that. Yeah, yeah. Others of you, moments or experiences you've had? Yeah, Hans. Well, I was talking to a, uh, an older lady that I used to work with, and... Uh, 
she's a, a Catholic, and she, after talking to her about how God interacts with your life, she goes, you know, I have never felt the love of God right. on me, ever. Right. And it's like, I'm just waiting for that time. Yeah. And, and then it's like, I feel it every day. Sure, right. Well, and, you know, we've we got to be careful here, right? Because whether or not we feel it, subjectively experience it, doesn't make it any less true or real, right? Um, but I think it is, it's one of those things where it's sort of like, it's like the cool whip on the strawberry shortcake, right? It's, it's a, a bonus that sometimes, I, perhaps especially in moments of, of a special duress or crisis, when God gives us those opportunities, or maybe it's on like a, a Easter Sunday, right? And the, you know, the, the trumpet is going and all God's people are singing together. And it's just that, that moment of transcendent or of, of elevation. We get tastes of it in this life here and there, fleeting experiences of it. Um, but until those, those spheres are perfectly overlapping, we're never going to know it in full. But that's part of the promise of the new creation, what we, what we look forward to, of that full immediate experience of, of God being in his presence. Cindy, did you want to ask? No, I was just, I was just You're. doing the overlap. You're just selling, yeah, that's right. Yeah, wax on, wax on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, eclipse, that's a good way of thinking about it too. It'll be a total eclipse of our hearts when, I'm sorry, guys. A um, couple more things. This is, a, this is a, a key point. Number four, you become what you worship for good or ill. What's the time? Okay. No, yeah. That clock's fixed. Oh, Yolanda. I'm sorry. Yolanda. It's interesting. The interlacking circles Yes. the sign of the 100-year hippocampus. Oh, so did Chip pay you to... to well, there's something to that, right? Because for yes. many people will talk about how Camp Arcadia... Or, or Arcadia generally, this is a place where you know, it feels like heaven and earth overlap, and you're like, okay, come back in January. Uh, but, <laughs> no, that, that, there's, there's something beautiful about that, and uh, I think perfectly appropriate, for sure. So you become what you worship. He, he mentioned this a little bit, um, and this is a very biblical theme. Uh, Psalm 115, I mentioned this one before, but it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell, hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk, and they don't make a sound in their throat. And then this, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. It's a very biblical theme that you become like what you worship. And if you worship a vain idol, if you, if you worship money, then your whole life is going to um, start to be shriveled up because money, finances, it just can't bear the weight of that worship. If you worship relationships, if you worship your job, whatever it might be. Remember, idolatry is when we make a good thing into an ultimate thing. Money, relationships, vocations, not bad things, but they can't bear the weight of our worship. And the more that we, we worship those things, the more we become like them and we become less and less human, as he said. To the contrary, when we worship God, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, as Esther was saying, we become more and more like the image of our Lord Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we are beholding the glory of the Lord with that unveiled face of faith, we're being transformed. That's an important tense of the verb there. We're being transformed. As a, a side note, if that's a, a theme that you find kind of interesting, there's a, a, a fictional depiction of this in C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces. It's not one of his most, most popular books. It's kind of tough sledding sometimes. But he tries to dramatize this transformation in a really interesting interesting way. But I do think that this challenges the typical view of hell. Or if you just have that kind of medieval picture of hell and the, um, you know, the plays that the guy comes out with the pitchfork and all this stuff, the point of hell, what makes hell hell, is that you are separated from God and that you are not. Jean-Paul Sartre said that hell is other people. He's wrong. Hell is you stuck with yourself and yourself alone for eternity, right? Because as that other prophet of the modern age, Larry David, has said, I'm a schmuck and I do schmucky things. You don't want to be stuck with your own schmucky self alone for eternity. That's hell, my friends. All due respect to those present here. It's true for all of us. So then finally, Christians are instruments of shalom and agents of God's kingdom. I mentioned this last week from John 20. Jesus says, Peace, shalom be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you out into this dry and dusty world so that the streams of living water might flow out of you and to your neighbors so that you might bring my shalom, my peace, my wholeness, my flourishing into your life and into the lives of your neighbors. And again, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Agents of his kingdom, instruments of his shalom. And so others have, have pointed this out, but what if we were to pray and to make a habit of praying, Lord, thy kingdom come in Arcadia as it is in heaven, right? In Bear Lake as it is in heaven, in Benzonia as it is in heaven. What if... Thy king, we were to pray, thy kingdom come here in our community, in our homes, among our neighbors, as it is in heaven. Gives you a little different perspective, doesn't it? But that's God's intent for us individually as believers and corporately as the church, that we would be that vehicle and that instrument of his blessing to the world. All right. Thank you very much for uh, being here. Next week, we will continue with the hope of the second coming. Hope of the second coming. See you then.